On the morning of Monday, September 10th, 1984, an as-yet little-known scientist was looking at the result of an experiment he'd set running the week previous. He was trying to look at genetic variation between individuals as a way of looking how diseases might run in families. But what he was about to discover was a technique that would change the world. The discovery of DNA fingerprinting was a glorious accident, and nobody believes me. And that was a moment that changed my life. We had a technician from the department and a mother and father. We could see how we could tell the three apart and how the technician's DNA fingerprint seemed to be a composite of part of a mother's and a father's. So the moment of discovery, the first 30 seconds were perplexity. This looks like a complicated mess. Don't know what's going on here. Then the penny dropped. And we suddenly realized, oh, wait a minute. This is potentially a method for biological-based or DNA-based biological identification. So this was revolutionary. I mean, really revolutionary in genetics. Up until this point, we knew that there must be genetic variation, but nothing that could actually tell people apart from one another just using their DNA. Alec and his team, and indeed his wife Sue, quickly saw what the implications were and its potential use in the wider world. And one of those uses was forensics. Could it be used to identify someone from the sorts of samples you would find at a crime scene? I brainstormed with my technician, that was Vicky Wilson, who was helping with this work, and we came up with a list of things that maybe you could use this for, so we could see forensics, you know, identifying bloodstains at the scene of crime, identifying rapists from semen recovered from victims. The other question, of course, for forensics is whether DNA actually survives in old blood samples. And on that very first day, we were sufficiently alive to that question that I was running around the lab, sticking pins in my finger and leaving blood drops all over the place. Are making up most crime scenes? The answer is yes, you can get DNA out of a blood spot, most certainly. It worked. You could get DNA from blood even after it had been on the lab bench for a few days. But Alec thought its use for forensic cases would be years away. We thought at the beginning, we could see the applications, but we thought, for example, in criminal investigations, DNA would be the technology absolutely of last resort. So you go to a crime scene, you do all your other tests, and when everything has failed miserably, then out of desperation, you wheel in DNA. And so I thought it would be a technology of last resort used in very few criminal investigations. Completely wrong. But its first use in a forensic case was only around two years away, and it was local. Two young girls had been raped and murdered three years apart in 1983 and 1986 in Enderby and Narborough, two villages just outside Leicester. The modus operandi suggested it was the same individual, and a young man, Richard Buckland, had confessed to the killing in the second case, that of Don Ashworth, but staunchly stood by his story that he hadn't killed Linda Mann in 1983. David Baker was the head of Leicestershire CID and leading the investigation at the time, and was stumped. The crimes looked linked. Surely Richard had also committed the first crime. David had heard about Alec's discovery when it hit the news the year previous, and he had a brainwave. If DNA could identify an individual... Could it show that Richard Buckland had committed both murders? I was the head of CID at the particular time and in charge of the inquiry into the death of Linda Mann. 
and then subsequently that of Dawn Ashworth. And during the Dawn Ashworth inquiry, a young man came into frame. He was making certain admissions into the death of Dawn Ashworth, but not Linda Mann. And we felt that both murders were connected. He was questioned in respect of Linda Mann and denied all knowledge of it. It was then that I recalled reading an article on DNA in the Leicester Mercury with the work of Sir Alec Jeffrey. Sir Alec takes up the story. So the police had heard of our DNA work through the press and wondered whether DNA could be helped first to confirm the guilt of this man with respect to the second murder, but more important, to try and tie him into the first. So we took that on the full expectation of getting absolutely nothing. We'd never attempted anything like this before. So we received the very intimate forensic samples, which I have to say was, that was chilling. That was a moment I found very uncomfortable. So, you know, doing a paternity case is one thing. Handling samples from a murder scene is something very, very different. So we got DNA profiles from semen recovered from both of those victims. So first question is, you get the same profile from both victims? Answer, yes. They had indeed been raped and presumably murdered by the same man. Was the young man who confessed to the second murder, was he guilty? Well, if you looked at his DNA profile, it was a complete mismatch. So that young man was then released. And I'm pretty sure without DNA and given his confession and circumstantial evidence, he probably would have gone to jail for the rest of his life. So the first time DNA was ever used in anger was not to prove guilt, but to prove innocence. And that's a really important point. So what the science showed completely changed the course of the investigation. After releasing Richard Buckland, what next? How to catch the killer before he killed again. Again, it was David who had a brainwave to set up a DNA dragnet to flush out the killer. Alec again. What then happened was that the police decided to completely believe in this arcane new DNA technology. So they launched locally the world's first DNA-based manhunt so they could flush out the true perpetrator. David takes up the story. We thought about using DNA as a test for all the men in the, in the villages of Narborough and Littlethorpe. Little Thorpe. So we set up a system whereby we would invite all the men voluntarily to come to a centre where we could take samples of their blood and have them blood tested as part and parcel of the inquiry. But David knew the killer might try to evade the dragnet. So he had people turn up with something like a passport to help identify them. But still, the killer slipped through the net. We'd also realised that somebody might try and evade the system. So we asked them to bring a letter which we sent to them, inviting them for the blood test, together with a means of identification, driving licence, passport, photographs. And of course, we realised that if somebody went to those extents, then they were letting somebody else into the secret, as it were, and uh, we'd be able to come back with the person responsible. And of course, that's exactly what happened is that um, whilst we were taking the samples, Pitchfork arranged for a man named Kelly, who we worked with him, to come to the um, blood centre at Enderby and put himself forward for the test in Pitchfork's name. But, fortunately for us all, 
Ian Kelly let slip what he'd done. He had stood in for the killer, Colin Pitchfork, a fellow bakery worker who lived in the nearby village of Littlethorpe. Of course, Kelly couldn't keep his mouth shut, which was what we expected. And of course, he spoke to a young girl there. They had a works outing at the Clarendon Arms. And uh, during the evening, Kelly mentioned to the company there that he'd taken the uh, blood test for Pitchfork. And it was about a week or ten days later that the young lady who was privy to the conversation came and saw a police officer that she knew and told him of this. And, of course, immediately we uh, took steps to identify Pitchfork and Kelly and uh, there and then arrested them as soon as we established their identities. And, of course, Pitchfork straight away admitted responsibility for both murders when he was arrested. It must have been quite a moment for the police after all that hard work. David Baker again. Well, it was a relief. I mean, there was a lot of pressure on us to find the person responsible for the murders. And, of course, you know, everybody was looking at you as the person responsible for the inquiry. And, uh, you know, everybody was sort of wondering whether or not the DNA would come forward. And, of course, it did. But at the heart of this were two families left grief-stricken by the loss of their daughters at the hands of Colin Pitchfork. Barbara, Don's mum, talks about the community spirit and how grateful she was to all those men who took part in the dragnet. Obviously, thanks have got to be given to everyone that turned up and took the blood testing to start with, because without them coming forward, we wouldn't have been able to proceed with it. It really was a combination of dogged police work, the community pulling together, and of course, the science that helped make it possible. Kath, Linda's mum. I got a phone call then from Mr Baker to say, we've got him. Obviously that was because he had persisted with the case and gone to Mr Jeffries with his amazing discovery. This was the first time where DNA fingerprinting proved instrumental in a forensic case. First, exonerating someone of crimes they didn't commit, and secondly, in convicting the man who had committed them. Colin Pitchfork was handed a life sentence with a minimum of 30 years. The Lord Chief Justice at the time, Lord Lane, said he doubted that he should ever be released. As it is, he was released on September 1st, 2021, a mere nine days to the 37th anniversary of when DNA fingerprinting was discovered by Sir Alec all those years ago. If he committed the same crimes today, he would most likely be given what's known as a whole life order, where the crimes are considered to be so serious he would never be released from prison. It's hard to overstate the importance and significance of Alec's discovery. For a scientist, who thought that his discovery would be a technique of last resort, it has proved to be one of the very first that police turn to in their investigations. Today, forensic DNA databases around the world lead to the resolution of thousands of crimes, bringing some sort of justice for the victims and their families. Scientific discoveries are truly thrilling. But in terms of real-world applications, DNA fingerprinting figures as one of the most momentous scientific discoveries of the 20th century. 
But let's give the last words to the mums of the victims in that very first forensic case where DNA fingerprinting was used. What has it meant to them? Kath, Linda's mum. DNA to us, which I, I do call Linda's legacy, because to me it is. It's all I can think of as being the one good thing to come from it. And finally, Barbara tells us of the legacy of that case and the science. Look at all that it's done since and how it's been refined and things like that. And thank goodness I look up to the heavens every day and say that we are done. We've caught another one and helped catch them unbeknowingly, but indirectly she has.